Hey, it's great to see you guys this morning. What a blessing worship was. Thank you, Fior. Thank you, James, for that great encouragement from the Word. Yeah, amen. I bet you guys wish we could just keep worshiping for like another hour, right? <laughs> hey, before we get started this morning, we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 10. Uh, if you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we have our brand new large print Bibles. And now, you know, if you need one, go ahead and we'll get one put into your hands. Okay, so one over here, it looks like, that one back there. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we would love you to take this one if you'd like it and take it home. And uh, most importantly, we want you to know the author of it. Amen. So great text today. It's a hard text today, but a great one. If you read ahead, you probably stayed home. So you guys are here, which means... You probably didn't read ahead, but before we uh, get started with that, I, I have a special announcement to make. It's actually uh, more of an introduction that I get to make this morning. I would like to introduce to you all for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Sean Listener, and you guys can stand up and wave. So you guys, uh, you guys know Sean and Ann as our favorite engaged couple, but as of Friday, they've become our favorite newly married couple. So we had a beautiful ceremony just out on uh, Carmel Beach, and they had found this cool little beach, and there was nobody else there. It felt like they reserved the whole thing. Uh, just for us, and uh, it was a little cloudy on the beach, but I assured them that it was the sun was shining in heaven, and God was very pleased with what we were doing uh, down there that day. So then they were down to uh, Big Sur, I think, and they came back for church this morning. So God bless them for uh, for being here. So um, it's appropriate that we announce a, uh, a a marriage today, and you'll see why as we get into our text, you guys will probably wish you'd stayed in, um, in Big Sur. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless uh, us and bless his word this morning. I know he's got some things he wants to speak to us uh, that are super important uh, for us, and I'm, uh, I'm excited for that. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for all of the blessings, Lord, that we share here as a church family, Lord, just this local church body united by the blood of your son Jesus, Lord, and we we're so thankful for the opportunities that we have to gather together, Lord, and to fellowship and to encourage one another, Lord, to worship you and to be encouraged and instructed by you, Lord, through your word. We pray for that teaching ministry of your spirit this morning, Lord. We pray that, that he would be our teacher and that our ears and our hearts would be open to those things he wants to speak to us today. And so we ask these things, Lord, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 10. And last week we started, if you remember, at the end, that last section of chapter 9, we started what is really, you know, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. It's really the final road to the cross. And we watched as he and his 12 disciples, they kind of left that area uh, of Caesarea Philippi, right, to the north of the Galilee. They returned now for the last time to the Galilee, and they were on their way down south, so where they could go up then to Jerusalem for what would be the final week and, of course, the ultimate work 
of the incarnation of Jesus where he would freely give his life as a sacrifice for us on the cross, right? That all-sufficient payment in full for our sin in order that we could be reconciled back to God. And we've seen, of course, as the, the cross, right, the weight of the cross just already heavy on his mind and, and weighing on his heart, and he really sort of has shifted into high gear now to kind of prepare these 12 men for his departure and to prepare them for the coming of his kingdom. Remember, it was coming in a way that they hadn't envisioned and in a way certainly that they couldn't have imagined. And last time we were together, we looked at what we said was one of the very few teachings that Jesus gave, which Mark records, right? It was one of the very few kind of red letter sections in Mark's account. And we heard, you know, Jesus teaching his disciples the true way that greatness is measured in the kingdom, right? In his kingdom, greatness is measured through our service of other people and through serving in particular, remember the, the little ones, right? Serving those who are the least, those who are not little necessarily in stature, I mean, pardon me, in, in height, but little in dignity, we said, right? Those who are overlooked, those who are undervalued by the culture, and that those are the people who are of such great worth to the heart of God. And yet, so important is this subject in the economy of God that we see that it was included there in its entirety by the Holy Spirit because it's really a foundational truth that the church needed to understand. And now this morning, as we continue, again, we're in this final approach to the cross, and in our text today, we're going to see yet one more teaching. It's one more of these very few red-letter sections in Mark's account, which is also a section and a teaching that's of great importance, both to the church and to the heart of God. And we're really going to see, I think, in it, there's some lessons for us in terms of really being able to balance law and truth and grace. And so let's jump in. Let's find out what this looks like. Look in verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. It says, Then he arose from there, so that's Capernaum, rose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. So this is the final time, right? The final time that Jesus will depart from that home base region of the Galilee, and he's continuing to move southward toward Jerusalem. And as he does it, what's interesting is he makes this weird kind of an S curve, right? It would have actually been, as strange as it looks there on the map, this would have actually been the normal route of travel for any Jew who was trying to go from the north down to the south, kind of moving east to avoid going through Samaria, they would actually cross back over a small section of the Jordan River into what is sometimes referred to as Perea, right? It's this, the Transjordan area. It's that area on the other side or the east side of the Jordan River. And so we're going to see now that everything that Mark's going to record for us in this chapter down through about verse 45, all of this stuff is going to happen over there in that part of Israel. Sometimes you'll hear Bible teachers refer to the Perean ministry of Jesus, and that's what this is. And we're going to see that even as he moved out of the Galilee region, right, all of a sudden, remember, he'd taken kind of that brief 
pause from public ministry. Remember, we saw it from about the middle of chapter 8. Jesus really started to pour in privately to his disciples. But now, even as they move out of the Galilee, we're going to see that that time is about to come to a close. Because in the rest of verse 1, so they, they come to this region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and it says again, and multitudes gathered to him again as he was accustomed, he taught them. And so we see the multitudes are back. And they're back even down here in Judea, right? Even down here miles and miles from the the ministry hub of Jesus up in the Galilee, right? These crowds are finding Jesus and they're pressing in on him and they are seeking to hear from him. And I think Mark makes note of this detail. It's important for us to understand and for the Romans to understand who would be reading this, for the, anyone who reads this, that the power of Jesus wasn't just restricted to the Galilee, right? His power, his popularity wasn't just centralized, right? It, it, you know, notice Mark indicates, he says that this wasn't just a single multitude. Look what he says there, that this is multitudes, uh, plural, That's how many people are gathering here, right? Jesus wasn't just some local phenomenon. He wasn't just the savior of the Galilee. He's not just the savior of the Jews, but he's the savior of the world, right? He's the savior of whosoever would come to him. And have you noticed in Mark's account in particular, though he doesn't record it, but we notice that most every time that Mark mentions that there was a multitude, it also says that Jesus taught them. And I just think that that's worth noting because it reminds us that that's just what Jesus does. He teaches. Jesus never, ever tires of teaching. Whenever people came to him or or gathered there around him, he taught them, right? Redeeming any opportunity, every opportunity to reveal the heart of God through the word of God Again, because the people never tired of hearing what Jesus has to say. And of course, in the very same way, right, our hope is that we would never tire, would we, of listening to Jesus as we hear his voice speaking to us through the word, right? It's the very bread of life that sustains us. It's the fuel of our faith. And so we've got this multitudes Right? These hungry people, they're just hoping to hear from Jesus. And look what we see next is that right there within this crowd was a familiar group that was not hoping to hear from Jesus. They were looking to try and trap Jesus. Look what it says in verse 2. It says that the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? So here are our old friends, right? These are the fault-finding Pharisees, right? The religious leaders of Judaism from down in Jerusalem. And they are on this relentless mission just to try to trip Jesus up. And here, I'm sure they thought they had him. Because they are asking him what was even then a very, very controversial question about marriage and particularly about divorce. And notice that Mark makes note through the Spirit here that this isn't, you know, just so there isn't any question, Mark wants us to know that this wasn't an honest question. 
right? These men are not uneducated here. They're not undecided here about the issue. They're not seeking the counsel of Rabbi Jesus to try to settle things in their own minds, not at all. They're coming here with this question, simply trying to trap Jesus. So this is the, is it lawful trap? Because this question, right, the question of divorce was an extremely kind of a controversial, a very divisive subject among God's people, even back then, just in the same way it is today. And remember, we've seen these guys before, right? These very same guys, these religious leaders, had already tried up in the Galilee, remember they'd already tried to trap Jesus and they brought him all these sanctimonious questions about the Sabbaths, right, and, and about signs and they had failed. So now here they are now in Judea on the way to Jerusalem and they're trying again, but this time they kind of are bringing out the big guns, right? This was an issue which was simply intended to divide. The, the issue of divorce and remarriage was the hot controversy of the day. And there were two main schools of thought proposed by two very influential and prominent rabbis of the time, which really kind of fueled the debate, right? Both schools understood that the law of Moses gave permission for divorce, right? Deuteronomy 24, in verse 1, it says that when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So both sides knew, and they believed Deuteronomy 24.1. The problem was they couldn't agree on what constituted uncleanness. This uncleanness that the husband was supposed to have found in the wife. Now, the first school of thought was a rabbi by the name of Shammai, right? Very conservative, very scriptural, a very strict and an unpopular view. And he understood that uncleanness simply meant sexual immorality. He said that that was the only valid reason for a divorce. Now, the second school was a rabbi by the name of Hillel, and he held to a much more lax and consequently a very popular view. He understood uncleanness to mean any sort of indiscretion. Right? For example, saying anything negative about her husband's mother would have rendered a wife to be unclean. Right? If a, a husband saw a woman who was fairer to look upon than his wife, then his wife would be unclean by comparison. Now, some rabbis, burning a husband's breakfast was considered valid grounds for divorce. Now, needless to say, Hillel had a great following, particularly, probably, the men who were looking for a way out of their marriages on any whim, right? Now, what we need to keep in mind as we talk about this entire subject is that the ancient world in general, and so the Jews as a result, they had a very low view of women. One historian writes this, that a wife was bought, regarded as property, used as a household servant, and dismissed at pleasure, right? Now, here's the problem is that although the Jews, just like all of the heathen nations around them, they had this low view of women, but the Jews also had a very high view of marriage. 
The Jews understood marriage to be a sacred duty. Right? One author said that if a man was unmarried after the age of 20, except to concentrate on the study of the law, then he was guilty of breaking God's command to be fruitful and multiply. So what would happen, we have these two views that are in tension, so their low view of women meant that their very high view of marriage was constantly compromised because they believed, get ready for it, they believed that the marriage was compromised because she was constantly at fault for ruining it. And so, as a result, we have all of these compromises which developed into this law of easy divorce, right, based on the thinking like of Rabbi Hillel. There was one rabbinic saying of the day that said, if a man has a bad wife, it is a religious duty to divorce her. And in fact, the Mishnah, which was that collection of rabbinic writings based on the Torah, the rabbinic law compelled a husband to divorce his wife if she'd been unfaithful to him. Now, all of this to say, to kind of paint this picture for you, that this debate concerning divorce and remarriage was just as heated then as it is now still in the church today. And what the Pharisees wanted Jesus to do here was to have him commit himself to one side or the other so that they could divide the people against him, right? Because if he agreed with the lax school of Rabbi Hillel, then it would be very clear that Jesus didn't take the law of Moses seriously. But if he agreed with the very strict school of Rabbi Shammai, right, he would all of a sudden become very unpopular with these multitudes who loved their easy access to easy divorce, right? Again, marriage and divorce, then as well as today, still a very divisive issue. Now, if you ask any pastor what are some of the key issues that are central in their ministry to people, you can bet that the issue of marriage, and of course divorce right along with it, is always right at the top of the list. Because marriages can be messy, right? They are complex, there are layers and layers of different dynamics that are all at play at the same time, right? It's almost like, you know, I don't even know if we still have these, like a multi-processing supercomputer. I guess we still have them, we just carry them in our pockets now, right? But like all these things happening at the same time, and a marriage not unlike one of these multi-processing supercomputers, sometimes marriages glitch, and sometimes they crash, sometimes they need to be refreshed, and sometimes they just plain shut down. And so I know that this is a difficult subject. It affects so many in the church today, and so many even that I'm aware of in this room this morning. And of course, the Bible speaks to all of these different situations, and we're going to see that our text today, I think we're going to watch Jesus really correct some misconceptions, really clarify some misunderstandings about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And it's so important that we deal with it honestly and scripturally and, hear me please, and that we bathe this subject in the grace and the humility that really should characterize this kind of a kingdom community. Right? Remember it says in the book of John that the law was given through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus have to say 
on the subject. Well, we're going to see soon. But before he answers their trick question, notice what he does. He asks them another question. They'd set this trap. Watch the way Jesus responds. They said, is it lawful? Verse 3, he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? He says, let's put aside what the rabbis are saying. What does the word of God say? So important, right? So elementary. What does Jesus do? Well, he does the very same thing that we should do when we're faced with similarly challenging situations, right? The Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce. They wanted to talk about all the rabbinical opinions. What Jesus wanted to do was just go back to the scriptures. He just ignored all of the noise of the the current sort of cultural debate, and he focused instead on what did the word of God say. And of course, in this case, it was the law of Moses. So he takes them back to that. Verse 4, they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. So, as we said, they knew, right? Both camps knew what the law said in Deuteronomy 24. They agreed that the, the, it, the Old Testament permitted divorce, that only the husband could initiate it, that divorce then would imply kind of the right to get remarried. They knew what the law said, but as we said before, what they couldn't come to an agreement on was how to interpret what the law said, right? They disagreed on what were the grounds for divorce. And here is what is especially ironic. Right? And you Bible students, you've already recognized this, I know. But the Deuteronomy 24 passage on which all of this controversy was actually based, when we read it in its entirety, it never actually condones the practice of divorce. All it does is set some boundaries on it. It simply out, I'm not going to read it, but it simply outlines what you are to do in the case of a divorce and a remarriage and a death and then the possibility of yet another remarriage but back to the original husband from the first marriage, right? That's a whole study for a different day. Maybe Pastor Jeff could tackle that on a Wednesday night for us, right? But the point is that they had all completely missed is that Moses and the law of Moses, all it did was simply acknowledged the presence of divorce in Israel, Which, by the way, fun historical fact, divorce came most likely as a direct result of the influence of pagan Babylon. Babylon, historically, seems to be the birthplace of divorce to begin with. One historian wrote this, that the oldest codified law in the history of divorce was traced in 1760 BC during the reign of King Hammurabi of Babylon. So it's Hammurabi's code, right? It is believed that the king carved 282 laws in stone tablets, including the law on divorce. So imagine that. Divorce came directly out of Babylon. Hundreds of years before, it was simply recognized as part of the reality of the fallen nature of man here in the community of Israel by the law of Moses. But here's the point. God's law did not institute divorce. It didn't authorize divorce. And it certainly never commanded it, as some of the rabbis were teaching. So the one thing that they have made clear here is that they actually didn't even understand what the law said. 
right? The Pharisees thought wrongly that God had commanded divorce when there was uncleanness. Again, Jesus wants them to understand the difference between commanded and permitted. God never commands divorce. He does permit it. And so now Jesus moves forward. Now he can focus on the real issue because now he's going to explain next that the only reason that God ever actually permitted it at all, look at verse 5. Jesus tells them, it says, He answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Right? So this was not a prescription in the law of Moses. This is a concession that was included there simply because of just how wicked men were. Right? And, and, and it wasn't even a concession necessarily because of the sin which could occur during a marriage, but the hardness of heart that so often would come around that sin, which would produce kind of a, a humanly irreconcilable situation. That Greek word there for hardness is the word scleros, and it's where we get our word sclerosis. Right, which is a most often used in conjunction of like the hardening of tissue or the hardening of an artery as what is the underlying cause of an illness. And here's the reality. Whenever a divorce finally occurs, the reason is never what people say it is. The reason, Jesus says, is always hardness of heart. So it's as if Jesus says, look, this was simply an allowance of God when the sinfulness and the hardness of heart has made the, the, you know, the ideal unattainable. When there is significant or serious sin that's committed within a marriage, right? sometimes the heart of the offending party is hardened and they just simply refuse what has to be done to repent and, and to reconcile the relationship. Other times, it's the heart of the offended person in the relationship. They refuse to reconcile. They refuse to work past the, the offense, even when the offender has, has repented and has, you know, so seems to be contrite. Very often, probably most often, there's hardness of heart on both sides, right? Because there are such deep, feelings of hurt and of bitterness and of betrayal and unmet expectations and there's resentment, right? And the hard truth is that the hardness of heart which usually destroys a marriage, it isn't just against the other person in the relationship, but you are sunk ultimately when that hardness of heart develops toward the Lord and what his will is and what his word says. When people understandably come to that point where they say, you know, I, I just, I, I don't really care what the Lord says, I just need this pain to end. And understand, these are never, ever simple situations, right? They're never without pain and anguish and heartache because we are frail and broken people, right? But, but safely we can say with the witness of the word and the witness of the spirit that divorce is never God's highest. And here's why. Malachi 2.16 is a verse I'm sure you've heard. It's very often quoted when this subject of divorce comes up. It says that the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Now, 
It's the second part of the verse that is rarely quoted, but it gives us the heart behind that. The second part of the verse says that divorce covers one's garment with violence. Right? So God hates divorce not just because it always involves some sort of a trespass or a, an unfaithfulness, but also because it brings these harmful consequences to the people involved and most likely to their children. You, you've probably heard it said that divorce simply solves one set of problems by doing what? Creating another set of problems, right? Divorce should never just be seen as a quick, easy option. Right? When, when things are difficult, oftentimes we as people are always prone, whatever the difficulty is, we're prone to think that a change, change in circumstances is always the answer to the problem. But it never is the answer to the problem, is it? Because the problem isn't around us. Where's the problem? It's within us, right? The, the heart of every problem is the problem of every heart. And so many couples go through divorce and they're looking for happiness in their new circumstances and all they discover is that they just carried their problems right along with them. It was actually a Christian lawyer. There are some, right? It was a Christian lawyer. We have some in here. And anyway, a Christian lawyer once said this, that about the only people who profit from divorces are the attorneys. Right? It's, it's absolutely true, right? Marriage is like a mirror, and all a marriage does is it reflects for us whatever it is that we are putting into it. And it's when both people, when both people are really ready and willing to put in forgiveness and grace and mercy, and when both people are ready to subject themselves to the will of God, that's when we start to see refreshing that's when we start to see restoration. But if even one of them allows that hardness of heart to take root and to grow and to take control, then indeed divorce often seems to be the only option. So if you are here and you are struggling in a difficult season of your marriage, if you are, you know, you feel like you're teetering on the brink of divorce, you need to get to the root of the issue and really pray for the softening of hearts, right? First, for both of you toward the Lord and his highest, and then toward the two of you towards each other, right? So Jesus uh, said Moses allowed divorce, but only because of this hardness of hearts. That was how to actually understand the law because the heart of God himself behind this whole issue was another thing entirely, Right? What they really needed was to understand the heart of heaven. And to get to the heart of that, Jesus takes them back again to the scripture, but now he takes them back even further than they could have ever anticipated. In verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So notice, instead of going back to Deuteronomy, where did Jesus go? He went back to Genesis, quoting out of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? So they're expecting him to say, well, I think on this, I probably kind of side with Shimei on this, or, you know, I'm kind of more along with what Hillel says, right? Again, they're trying to divide him. They had no idea he was going to take them all the way back to Genesis 1, 
take them right back to the Garden of Eden himself, and then do it right in front of this multitude of people. But that is exactly where he took it. He took them right to the heart of what marriage really is. And notice what Jesus just did. He shifted the emphasis from this discussion on what were the grounds for divorce. Now he wants to give them a lesson about the origin of marriage itself. He says, look, how about we talk about marriage instead? How about we talk about what marriage was always intended to be? Let's go back further than the rabbis. Let's go back even beyond and before the law of Moses. He said, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Let's go back to where the original law of marriage was actually established. He says, because it's there that you'll discover the root of the issue. You guys see what I did there? Garden of Eden and the root the root of the issue, the root is in the Garden of Eden. Anyway, here's the point though. The root of the matter about marriage is that marriage is a divinely appointed union, right? The entire institution of marriage is God's institution. It doesn't have its origin on earth with man. Think about it logically. Can you imagine any group of men, right, as fallen and as carnal as men are, any group of men in human history who got together and said, hey, let's establish an institution that limits us to one woman for our entire life, right? There's no way a group of men is going to get together and decide that for themselves, now, of course, yes, I'm talking about other men, not the men in this church, because the men in this church would absolutely decide that. I know that. But for men to set this up as an institution and to put these kind of boundaries around it, understand, this only exists in human history because God instituted it, right? God established marriage, and therefore what? Only God can control what marriage is. Only God can control the laws that govern it. There's no earthly court of law. There's no interpretation of heavenly law that can change what God had established. And this is why the Genesis passage that Jesus quotes that defines what marriage actually is here, that very passage concludes with a conclusion that Jesus also quotes in verse 9. What does it say? Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And here's my paraphrase of that, right? The heart of heaven is that man needs to stop disrupting marriage through divorce because it's not our place. It's not our prerogative. God's original purpose, right? The heart of heaven that Jesus just made clear. He took us back to the beginning. God's heart is one man should wed one woman in a monogamous, heterosexual, permanent, one-flesh relationship, and that only death should break that union. We're going to get emails about that, right? This is why it is so absurd today, all of these attempts to redefine marriage and to make marriage fit whatever it is that we want it to fit. And I will just simply say that it's absolute insanity to think that fallen man can improve upon this institution that God ordained, and especially to try to do it in order to accommodate lifestyles that God himself has said are sinful. 
And for man to think that we can do that is nothing but absolute arrogance to think that we somehow have that right. Now, people may not like this kind of literal or fundamental or narrow or intolerant view, but it doesn't change the fact that marriage is God's institution. It doesn't belong to man, right? So it's very fair to say that his rules apply and I think it's important to say that his design applies too, right? Now, it's amazing that we need to make this observation, but God created men and women differently, right? With different and unique qualities. And I found a list of these scientifically verified differences, and I forget where I found them. I think it was an esteemed medical journal, or it may have been the internet. But it says this. It says, a man will pay $2 for a $1 item he needs, and a woman will pay $1 for a $2 item that she doesn't need as long as it's on sale. Right? It says that a woman marries a man expecting that he will change, but he doesn't. And a man marries a woman expecting that she won't change, and she does. Okay, this one, number three, says that a woman knows all about her children. She knows about dentist appointments and romances, best friends, favorite foods, secret fears, and hopes and dreams. But a man is vaguely aware that some short people are living there in his house. This is an important one. A woman has the last word in any argument, and anything a man says after that is what? It's the beginning of a new argument. Men, write this down. Any married man should forget his mistakes because there's no use in two people remembering the same thing. And then, and then if those differences weren't enough, these are actual images which contrast the brain activity between first men, okay, and now this one is the brain activity of a woman. And so I think that we can see Right, the, the point, of course, all of that silliness to simply say what we all know, men and women were not created to be the same, and we're not the same. And this current debate to insist that they are the same, what it actually does is it degrades both men and women because it robs both of them of their very unique contribution and their specific God-ordained roles within the marriage relationship. Because here's the thing about marriage. Despite all of these fundamental creation-rooted differences between the natures of men and women, the miracle and the mystery of marriage is that God calls a husband and he calls a wife to come together and to become one flesh, right? To really complement and to complete one another because each brings their totally unique attributes into this new one flesh relationship. And I love the way one author put it. He said the reference, the one flesh reference, is primarily to the physical fleshly unity, but flesh in Hebrew thought represents the entire man. And the ideal unity of marriage covers the whole nature. It is a unity of soul as well as of body, of sympathy, interest, and purpose. And it is this sometimes very painful process, right? As these two not alike things 
come together and become one flesh, this is the part of God's great and mysterious work in a marriage. It's that work of sanctifying and refining not only the two of us as a couple, but each of us as individuals and of producing then what is a, 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 a good parental team. And of course, that simply fulfills one of God's primary purposes in instituting marriage between a man and a woman in the first place is so that the human race can continue on. Right, Genesis 1, to Adam and Eve, it says that God blessed them and God said to them what? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, you guys know I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but it is hard not to recognize this basic biological necessity which can only be accomplished within marriage according to God's plan for marriage, right? It's the family and it's the production of a family. And without question, the family is the foundational, fundamental building block of society. It's the cornerstone of God's plan for a healthy population. And that is precisely why it is so under attack today. Because Satan knows that if he can destabilize and minimize and call into question and undermine or redefine this basic building block, that the destructive effects will be cancerous. And you simply look at marriage today, you look at the family unit that comes out of marriage, and we think about this full frontal attack on these things just in the past 50 years, right? As the culture wars against these two things from every angle, right? It's a really, it's a declared war on the cornerstone of civilization. And what's happening is we are destroying God's institution of marriage and of family in our culture. And the ramifications of this, should the Lord tarry, right? We probably can't even conceive of where this is going to go just in terms of the unraveling and we, like we said, the destabilizing of our society. And of course, it's already happening. You think about the things that we deal with daily and the things that we're hearing about daily that even 10 years ago, we would never even have dreamed that these things were up for discussion. Because what has happened is the front lines have moved way beyond just an attack on marriage, right? People are now questioning basic biology and they're creating what is really this crisis of identity about gender and about sexuality for countless individuals and in particular young people. And of course, you don't need me to stand up here and tell you horror stories or, or to lament the statistics. All we need to do, right, is look around and see the pain and the confusion and the broken lives and the broken homes and the broken relationships that this causes. You know, Jesus said this, he said that the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And this whole thing is so fitting, even on a much deeper, on a spiritual level, that this beautiful institution of marriage would be so under attack by the enemy because scripturally, right, symbolically, of course, the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, the way that God designed it, purposely pictures for us, what? The relationship between us and Jesus. 
It's a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church, right? Paul says to the Ephesians, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. I use this illustration every time I get to perform a wedding, but in the very same way that Eve was taken from the side of Adam, right, the church was born from the wounds in the side of Jesus as he suffered and died there on the cross, right? Jesus loves his bride. He loves the church. He nourishes us with his word, right? He cleanses us and he cares for us. Right? We look forward, as it says in Revelation, it says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So you see, here's the, here's the thing, you guys, and this is why this is important, is that as Satan is successful in damaging this institution of marriage socially, he is also destroying this very important biblical picture spiritually. That picture of our very relationship with Jesus. So yes, marriage is important to God. It should be important to us as well, right? It's not easy, right? Happy marriages are not accidents. It's absolutely true what they say that marriages are made in heaven, but it is also equally true that they have to be lived out down here on earth. Right? They're the result of commitment and love and mutual understanding and of sacrifice and of hard work. And what they require is that we serve one another and that we walk in humility. And I just want to take a minute to point out the obvious because pointing out the obvious is what I do. And I know you guys noted this because you are a super smart group of people, but once again, just in the way that Mark's gospel is laid out, right, just so happens to be arranged, and of course I say that ironically, and what I mean is as we look at the way that the Holy Spirit assembled the account of Mark, do we think that it is just simply by coincidence that at the end of the last chapter, right, the last teaching that Mark included was a teaching about the importance of service, servanthood, and of humility, right? How we relate to one another and how we minister to one another and pointed out that these are both the foundational factors that set us apart to be considered great in God's kingdom. So that was the end of chapter 9. And this morning now, as we roll right into chapter 10, it is no surprise that we're dealing with the subject that we're dealing with of marriage and divorce. Because I have absolutely no doubt that the Holy Spirit, as he inspired the account of Mark here, that the Spirit placed this discussion regarding marriage immediately following the instruction that just came on what are some of the most important elements for a successful marriage, and that's humility and servanthood. Right? Anybody who's married will tell you marriage is like, it's like a, a PhD level course, right? It's a practical lab where we really learn these things and we learn it in the real world and in a real life environment. And again, as anyone here this morning who's married will say, you know, the marriage relationship in so many ways, it's like a, it's like a crucible, right? That the Lord puts us through really to refine and to reform us. And it's not easy, but it is well worth it. 
right? The call to marriage is a high and holy calling for those Christians who are called to be married. In the very same way, I will say that singleness is an equally high and holy calling for those Christians who are not called to marriage, right? That's the true heart of heaven. In a marriage, when a husband and wife are fulfilling their vows, they bring glory to God, they're going to enjoy growing in this relationship, right? Just the way the Lord intended, all the way back in the garden, right? It's never easy, but it's always important. And I think it's probably also important, and maybe it's helpful. I want to point out one more thing that that, that great sage of our time, Clint Eastwood, apparently said, that marriages are made in heaven, but so is thunder and lightning. So I'm just going to leave that with you guys. You can talk about that at Married Couples Fellowship today. So as we move on, right, Jesus offers this airtight, this scriptural defense, right? And what's interesting is that neither Mark nor even the slightly expanded account that Matthew gives us, neither one record for us what is the reaction of the fault-finding Pharisees, right? I suspect it's because knowing their own hardened hearts, they had nothing to say. They were unable to resist the wisdom and the reason and the logic, no doubt seeing their own sin before their eyes, and they were just left speechless. And no doubt, right, this happened in front of a multitude, no doubt they were embarrassed. Now, the disciples, on the other hand, they did have more to say, right? So they're trying to reason through this, what Jesus has just said. So finally, in our last few verses, it says this, that in the house, so apparently they went into a home as they arrived there. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And so he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That was clear. So, right, if they thought that Jesus was maybe going to back off a bit in private from what he had just said to the multitudes in public, they were sadly mistaken. Right, so this statement of Jesus, this is kind of one of those, like, mic drop moments because he unequivocally here says that marriage is a permanent union. And all divorce does, it violates that creation ordinance, but it doesn't actually dissolve it. Right now, if we take this by itself, these verses would indicate that divorce is always forbidden under all circumstances. And, and I have no particular interest in trying to explain away anything that Jesus says, but I do think we need to clarify. This particular incident in Jesus' ministry, there is some greater detail that's given to us concerning this teaching. It's included in Matthew's gospel. And we know in Matthew's account of the very same event, it records that Jesus said that he was speaking about divorce except in the case of sexual immorality. Matthew 19.9 reads that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus does declare that in the end, as a result of sexual immorality, that there is room, right? There's biblical room for a divorce on that basis and then for remarriage. 
And this teaching, as we would expect, is, is consistent with all the other New Testament passages that deal with the same subject. And so we need to understand this passage in Mark as we take into account the whole counsel of God. But notice what Jesus did do in the Matthew statement. He just solved the debate, right? He clarified any confusion as he interpreted what the Jews thought was this mysterious meaning of uncleanness in the Mosaic law, showing that it does refer to specifically to sexual immorality. It doesn't refer to just saying something that made your husband displeased. And of course, Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians, he, he clarifies that sexual sin is particularly bad sin, if you will, because it's a sin specifically against the body physically, but it's a sin that hits at the heart of the union of marriage spiritually, right? It destroys that intimacy because there is little else in a practical way that cuts or wounds so deeply for a couple than betrayal in this area. But I want to be clear, right, since we're trying to be clear, again, that specific ancient Greek word that's used there for sexual immorality, it is a very broad word, right? It's porneia, and it's where we get our word what? Pornography. It covers a very wide span of sexual impropriety, including much of what our culture today considers to be okay, because it includes anything outside of sexual relations between one man and one woman in a heterosexual, committed, God-ordained marriage. Right? So one can be guilty of porneia, one can be guilty of sexual immorality without actually having consummated an act of adultery. So one language expert said it must be admitted that the word porneia itself is very broad. Porneia covers the entire range of such sins and should not be restricted unless the context requires it. So it seems as we try to work through this that the clear intention, right, the kingdom ideal in the kingdom economy is that divorce and the freedom to remarry without sin is only permitted in the case of sexual immorality. But even that has a pretty broad context. Now, before we go and make marriage into some kind of a toxic police state, again, Let's remind her, Jesus didn't teach that the offended person had to get a divorce, right? God's desire for any marriage that's broken, even in that way, the desire is always for forgiveness and always for reconciliation. Think about the entire book of the prophet Hosea. It's an entire book based on the story of an adulterous wife and a faithful husband, and it is a symbol of the unfaithfulness of Israel to God through idolatry and God's faithfulness and his patience to bring them back into that place of restored fellowship. And it's a reminder to us that certainly there can supernaturally be forgiveness and there can come patient healing and restoration of a relationship that has suffered because of those types of sexual sins. And I am living proof of that standing here before you this morning. But very sad to say, so often, 
understandably, it's because of our own frailty and our fears and our hurts that our hearts can harden to the point where sometimes it seems impossible to heal those deep wounds and to save the marriage. And in those cases, divorce may be the final option, but please, it should never be the first option. Even where there has been such a serious breach of the marital covenant, it's serious and it's damaging. And so serious, in fact, that Jesus says the only scriptural basis for divorce, right, is if there's adultery and that anyone else who gets married again after that is committing adultery all over again. Why? Because in God's eyes, they are still married to that, to that other person, and that marriage was never actually dissolved on biblical grounds. This is a hard word, right? Aren't you glad you came back from Big Sur, right? This is a hard word. It's hard for us to hear. Jesus is very clear here that incompatibility and not loving each other more or brutality, even ministry, are not grounds for divorce. Now, you know, a, a, you know, a misguided sense of spirituality or general happy, unhappiness or conflict or abuse or addiction or these kinds of things, these may be proper grounds for a separation, Right, Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, he recognizes, without necessarily encouraging, that one might depart under those kinds of circumstances, but they can't consider themselves divorced with the right to remarry because their marriage hadn't split up for reasons that justify a biblical divorce. Now, in all of this, I need to point out that the Apostle Paul, when writing to the Corinthians in that very same chapter, he does note another situation that would be included in this sort of permission to divorce biblically, and that's the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Or abandonment, I would include, even by someone who professes to be a believer but continues to act like an unbeliever. Paul says that if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. And, and many would include in this sort of abandonment scenario, just like I would include, the abandonment of a spouse, not just from the marriage relationship, but you can even have the abandonment of a spouse within a marriage relationship where you just have one party, one part of that couple who just refuses to dwell with or to really make an effort at life with that other person. And in some situations, that can be grounds for a biblical divorce. Now, if you missed all that last half hour, tune back in because I want you to hear this. This is important that we understand this. A divorce that's based... Even a divorce that's based on unbiblical grounds, it may be a sin, but it is not the unpardonable sin. Right? Divorce, even for unbiblical reasons, is not the unpardonable sin. I think about the most famous marital failure in all of history. Who was that? It was David. It was the man after God's own heart. Right after that adulterous affair he had with Bathsheba, David kills her husband trying to cover up the sin. And we know that God dealt with David. 
right? David, who in this case was the offender, right? In more ways than one, offender not just of adultery, but also of murder on top of that. And God dealt with David, right? Chastising him by allowing that child that was conceived as a result of that adulterous affair, God took that child with him into eternity. And we know that this greatly impacted David. And yet once David was dealt with, Here's the thing to know, the next child that he had from this very same relationship now with Bathsheba, who was that? It was Solomon, who would subsequently become the king of Israel, right? And part of the messianic line. The other thing we see is that all of David's wives, which were many and also not part of God's plan, but... Bathsheba remained in a very prominent place, and at the end of David's life, it was Bathsheba who had access to David and who was very instrumental in establishing that next phase of the kingdom. So as we look at the life of David in particular, what we see is the Lord dealing with this sinful situation through chastening and adjusting and through correcting, and based on that, I do not believe that a person who has had a failure in a previous marriage lives in continual adultery in a second marriage. Because if that were the case, then God would not and could not have blessed Solomon. I do believe that where there's divorce and remarriage, inevitably there is a tearing away of that previous relationship and there's this coming together of a new relationship, I do believe that in that act, there could be the act of adultery. But Jesus doesn't say that although there was an act of adultery, that that, that, that person then remains for the rest of their lives living in adultery. And there was an example I read years ago from Pastor John Corson. It was an example from his own ministry and I think it's so helpful here. I just wanna read it to you in its entirety. It should only take 35 or 40 minutes. He said, I once talked with a young man about 25 years of age who was part of our church family and on leave from an elite branch of the Air Force. He had fallen in love with a lady who also loved the Lord, but who had been married at age 17. After her marriage failed, she was at age 25, a single mom. This young pilot sat in my office weeping as he said, I love this lady deeply, but if I marry her, I fear we'll be living in adultery all of our lives. And this is what Pastor John said to him. He said, I can't tell you what to do, but I do know this. I'm a bride, and I have failed greatly. But my bridegroom, Jesus Christ, was willing to absorb my pollution and my iniquity to bring me into his love and into his family. Therefore, I do not believe it is against the heart of God for you to enter into a relationship to redeem that mother and child, even if it means absorbing pollution and bearing iniquity. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for me. And I know that we've taken some extra time to really address this issue, but we've done it because I believe it's important to address and to really find a place of balance, a place of balance from a biblical perspective based on biblical principles because, again, it, it's only as we first actually understand the law that we can really understand the true heart of heaven behind it 
And only then can we start to really rightly balance the law with truth and with grace. And what we have today is on one hand, people are taking divorce far too lightly because they fail to, to realize how serious it is. But on the other hand, the church too often mistakenly stands way too ready to just judge and condemn a couple who admittedly already failed, but who have sought the Lord and are now trying to start off in a new life together, right? So my encouragement is that we need to see this entire subject in the light of the heart behind the gospel itself, right? It's as Paul wrote to the Romans. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, what? Grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So there needs to be a balance, both of truth and of grace, around this very sober, very serious matter of marriage and of divorce and of remarriage. And I know today's text can be a hard one. Right? It, it might have been hard for some of us here this morning, but again, the enemy is an expert, and he is always going to exploit our guilt and our shame over past mistakes because what he wants to do is he wants to turn them mercilessly into this paralyzing doubt and this lingering condemnation over the past so that he can try to disrupt what God has for us in the future. So I want to close simply by considering what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7. He says that as the Lord has called each one, let him so walk. And the context of that passage, right, one of Paul's ideas with this whole statement, it's a warning about trying to go back and undo the past in regard to relationships. What God's telling us is we just need to repent of whatever sin may be there in our past and then do what? move forward from it. So if you're here this morning and you're in a subsequent marriage after a wrongful divorce, please do not think that you have to leave this new relationship and go back somehow trying to undo the past because two wrongs really don't make a right. You may be here this morning and an unbiblical divorce or an act of adultery, that might be part of your story. And I have to imagine that you have struggled with these very scriptures and that the Holy Spirit, you know, after all the dust had settled, he may have taken you to the woodshed, tried to deal with these things that happened. But again, here's my encouragement for you today from one who knows what he's talking about is don't let Satan keep you there in the woodshed, right? Don't let him turn that conviction into condemnation, right? As the Lord has called you, wherever that is, walk in that place. Right that place where you are right now, right here this morning, walk knowing that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, right? Knowing that where there's been a failure in, the, in your past, that God does have this beautiful redemptive plan for your future, 
right? You can walk knowing that the grace of God is big enough and it's deep enough to overwhelm even what may be your greatest sin and to just simply wonderfully bless you as he brings you forward into all of the things that he has for you. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we do thank you, Lord, the way that it clarifies, Lord, it exemplifies, Lord, it magnifies, Lord, what is your heart, Lord, behind the law, Lord, your heart behind the word, Lord, as we understand it all in the context, Lord, as we look at the whole counsel of God, we see the things that are truly important to you, Lord. And we pray that you would help to make these things real to us. Lord, we pray that you would write your truth on, um, Lord, we pray that you'd write it on the soft flesh of our hearts. Lord, guard us from that hardness of heart, Lord. And we pray that you'd help us to walk in new life, Lord, looking forward expectantly to what you have for us. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys. Let's stand up and let's worship the Lord.